Thank you all for coming. Um, our session, The Road to Success, Exploring the Intersection Between Planning and Innovation. Uh, today we're talking about uh, master planning and strategic planning. Hopefully my pointer will work. All right, so uh, just to start off with, uh, how many of you have a strategic plan for your organizations? How many of you have a master plan? One, wow. Um, how many of you use your strategic plan on a regular basis? <laughs> Sometimes. Any of you in the process of uh, doing a strategic plan right now? Any of you in the process of doing a master plan? Do you know the difference between a strategic plan and a master plan? <laughs> no. Okay. You might need to explain yeah. the difference. So we'll talk about that okay. a little bit. Um, so obviously a strategic plan is something that uh, identifies the core of your organization, what you're about, why you're doing what you're doing. That's what master plan, you know, that's what, that's what planning is really fundamentally for because you really need to identify you know, what is your core mission? What are the things that you are trying to achieve and why are you here fundamentally? You know, what makes you important? What makes you unique? Um, and that's what your strategic plan is about. A master plan is how are you gonna get there? So, you know, what are the things that you're gonna do, uh, whether it's facilities, whether it's organizational, um, is how are those things gonna work towards your strategic plan? So they work together. That's why a master plan is important, but it's also part of a strategic planning process. So we're gonna talk a little bit about a couple uh, projects that we've worked on master planning and also about uh, strategic planning uh, in this effort. But let me first uh, introduce our panel. Uh, it's actually slightly different than what's in the program. So my name is Steve Blashfield. I am a principal uh, and the cultural studio director for Glave and Homes Architecture. We are based in Richmond, Virginia. Uh, about a 70-person architectural firm. We do a lot of work uh, in the East Coast, particularly with a lot of historic sites in Virginia. I'm going to let uh, Melissa and Ann introduce themselves. And I am Melissa Pricer. I am the president and executive director of Dallas Heritage Village located in Dallas, Texas. And we are a collection of about 30 historic buildings that have been moved to parkland that was Dallas's first city park. I'm Ann Peterson. I'm the executive director of the Santa Barbara Trust for Historic Preservation in Santa Barbara, California. And we do a few things, but our flagship project is that we operate El Presidio de Santa Barbara State Historic Park for the state of California. It's uh, one of four Spanish forts in California, and we were the uh, founding site in our community. So what we're gonna do today is talk a little bit about why do you do a master plan? Why do you do a strategic plan? What are some sort of important aspects of that? Um, and then we're going to talk about um, some individual things. Uh, Ann and Melissa are going to talk about their institutions. I'm going to talk about Gunston Hall, which is a property I've been working on for the last four years. Uh, originally in our program, we had Scott Stroh, who was the executive director, who is the executive director of Gunston Hall, uh, who was uh, supposed to be here with us. Uh, unfortunately, about two months ago, his board changed his board meeting to today. 
And so he is actually sitting in a board meeting right now back in Virginia and couldn't be here with us today. Uh, so I will be talking on his behalf about Gunston Hall uh, in, this, uh, in this process. But we're going to have lots of time for dialogue. We have some questions that uh, uh, we're going to talk about. So I um, want to make this an interactive session, not just us up here talking to you, but uh, hearing from you as well. So uh, we're looking forward to the, uh, the session. So, you know, a few things I'd like to say about master planning, strategic planning in this process, you know, that are core to why you need to do it and why it's important. Um, you know, master planning, as I mentioned in the first place, is really about identifying who you are and why you're here, you know, and what makes you different. And that's, you know, that's the fundamental thing that you want to figure out because you have a lot of competition. You have a lot of other uh, issues. But, you know, the big thing, and I know we talk about this all the time, you know, the the first point I want to make is that change is inevitable. You know, so change is coming all the time. And master planning is, and strategic planning is about responding to change. You know, I can use a great building example. This is the Alexander Black House uh, and Cultural Foundation. Um, this is a picture of every decade just about from when it was built in the upper hand left-hand corner, 1895, to when we restored it and made it the Cultural Foundation uh, in 2015. Um, a common misnomer with buildings, you know, when you build the building, the day you open, it's not done. It's just beginning. It has a life. It exists long, you know, for a long time. For your organizations, you are the same way. You know, the first day you opened your organization, I imagine, looks very different than the organization that you know now. Uh, you have a life, you evolve, you change, influences change uh, that affect you, you know, and as you can see from this, sometimes good, sometimes bad, you know, it's, uh, it's, there's a lot of change that happens, and we know a lot of these stories, I mean, the National Endowment for Arts has been telling us for years these statistics, you know, historic sites are declining in attendance, we have changing demographics, these are, these are things we know and things we're constantly trying to grapple with uh, in our processes. I love this particular map. This is related to Gunson Hall. This is all of the historic sites in Fairfax County that Gunston Hall competes with. In fact, in within 50 miles of Gunston Hall, there are 90 different historic sites that tell the revolution story. So, you know, you are faced with a lot of challenges in order to try to identify why people should come to you and understand what you're about. And technology, you know, is a, is, a, is a key thing that's happened to us in the last 20 years. I mean, how much has that changed the way that you interact with your visitors and the way visitors interact with you? And it's part of responding to that that is really important in that effort. You know, the second thing is that visitors come to you with lots of different expectations. In, in the architectural world where I come from, people write whole books about this. You know, this is Christopher Alexander, Pattern Language. Some of you may have heard of this. He wrote an entire book about patterns that people respond to when they come into buildings and understand, you know, fundamentally without you telling them what that means and what they're responding to. You know, that happens within your own organizations. You know, so you have to, you know, ask those questions. ASLH has a great program called Visitor Count. You know, Scott Stroh went through this at Gunston Hall. I know Aunt, uh, Melissa has gone through this uh, at Dallas Heritage Village, um, where they were able to find out 
who's coming? You know, what are the demographics? Where are they coming from? What are they, what are they really excited about when they get there? And what are they not excited about? That was a sort of key to the master planning process that we did uh, with Gunson Hall was, was learning all those things and really being able to use that information uh, in looking forward in this process. But, you know, museum visitors come from all types. You know, it's, it's common that we think that people who come to these places, you know, all want to read everything that's on the wall. And, you know, they want to follow your timeline. You know, and in fact, statistics say otherwise. You know, there's lots of different types of museum visitors, and you have to respond to all those types of museum visitors. You know, not just the, you know, what we call the scholars, the people who want to read everything on the wall, but, you know, the streakers and the strollers, too, you know, who fly through your museum and want to be there, get, you know, get the T-shirt kind of thing uh, in that effort. And so, you know, there's a lot to think about. Uh, when you get into your organizations, but that that fundamental thing people come to you with those pre-existing ideas You need to un try to understand those things and try to understand what are the things that get people to you and how can you develop that and um, Take advantage of it uh, in that effort The third thing is that that you are faced with a lot of priorities. You know this better than I do. You know, and how many challenges you face on a daily basis. Um, and, you know, trying to maintain those core values, those priorities, those things you identified in your strategic plan, is, it's really challenging because there's a lot of things coming at you on a daily basis with your organizations. Um, and so, you know, I, I had a good fortune a few years ago, I saw uh, Mayor Joseph Riley speak. Uh, he's the mayor of, of Charleston for about 25 years. He retired a few years ago, but he's largely credited for the, uh, the redevelopment of Charleston and making it into a place that we all see as a, a desirable place to visit today. You know, but he was working on the planning of Charleston, you know, and asking all these questions like, you know, why don't we you know how can we get more people downtown? How can we get people, you know, active within our community? You know, and he started asking questions like, well, I need to get more retail into these spaces and get, you know, so people will come and spend more time and shop. And, you know, I can't get them onto the side streets because they're all on just one street. And part of his complaint was, well, the sidewalks are too narrow. You know, and, you know, he so he, he goes to the, uh, the council and the, you know, the local, uh, traffic people and he says, you know, why can't we widen the sidewalks? And he got a lot of pushback from them. And they said, you know, well, if there's an illegally parked beer truck on the side of the road, we can't get our city buses by if we widen the sidewalks. And he said, why are we making all our decisions based on an illegally parked beer truck? <laughs> so, you know, I, on a building side, you know, one of the great examples that I've, uh, my firm has had the good fortune to work on, this is Corny Williamsburg. This is the lodge uh, where people stay. Originally built in 1933. Uh, this is what it looked like in the 1990s up to about 2000, this is an aerial view of the structure. But they, you know, they built this thing in the mind of sort of context of the development of Colonial Williamsburg. Uh, in this historic culture, but you can see what happened over time. You know, these forces that sort of came into it, like we have to get all our visitors in out of the rain, so we put up these structures. You know, we had flagpoles, but they sort of got lost in the middle of that. You know, we started putting all kinds of buildings, and everything became about the car, you know, in the kind of organization of this space. 
and you know they lost the sort of core identity of who they were and what it, what, what it meant to come to Colonial Williamsburg and have a Colonial Williamsburg experience uh, as part of this effort. And so you know that was part of the sort of fundamental thing that we wanted to get to is you know making a new clarity, you know, a new entry court, you know, but this is the entry. This is the 1933 building. This is the entry that exists now. You know, getting back to the core identity of who you are uh, that people fundamentally understand and came, you know, why they came to you in the first place, you know, and that's, that's what's important about your organization, as I mentioned at the beginning, you know, remembering that core thing that, that really drove you into this in the first place, that, that gets you up in the morning, you know, that, uh, that has brought people to you in this effort. So, you know, master planning, strategic planning really are about, about these fundamental things. They're about long-term, sustainable, and positive change. Change is scary, change is sometimes hard, but you know it's it's about that effort, and that's so we're going to talk a little bit about our individual organizations uh, today. I'm going to turn this over to um, Melissa to, to uh, talk about Dallas Heritage, talk about Dallas Heritage Village, and and we'll walk through a couple of these. So this is a map of our site, and as you can see, we have this slight problem of this highway that is right here. And on the other side of the highway is downtown Dallas. And this neighborhood around us is known as the Cedars neighborhood. And it was the first prominent residential neighborhood in Dallas. So it was just a streetcar ride away from all the downtown businesses. And so there are always um, a variety of really nice homes there, um, but also factories because the other key I love telling this story with historians because then I don't have to explain everything, is there's railroad lines here. So you want to build your factory next to your railroad line and you want your house near it so that you don't have a commute and your workers are there. So it was always a very diverse neighborhood. And of course, this highway came through in 1965, took about half of our, this, this land right here is Dallas's first city park. Um, took about half of the original city park land, cut off the cedars from downtown, and there was white flight was already going on in this neighborhood, and um, that it rapidly continued. And so they decided in 1966 to put a museum there. <laughs> yeah, it, it, sometimes I feel like we've been cursed since day one. Um, over time, uh, mainly in the 80s, all of this property was purchased by... Dallas County Heritage Society, the nonprofit that runs things um, for expansion, but also because the neighborhood was so abandoned that it was also a protective mood, move to make sure that we had a buffer around us and all of that good stuff. So that's kind of our, our basic master plan um, story on the early days. So this was the master plan that we adopted in 2006 and were able to do part of it in 2008, but not all of it because you know what else happened in 2008? A recession. So in some ways, this recession actually ended up being a really good thing for us long term. But the idea was we had these parcels. At the time, this was a through street so with traffic on it and so if you're jumping off school kids on buses and then asking them to cross the street like that kind of opens up 
some concerns. So, and of course, our all of our parcels of land were not united. So the big thing that we were able to do in 2006 and 2008, when we actually were doing construction in phase one, was to unite all of our parcels, put a big old fence around everything, because again, there's nothing else around us but vacant lots and vacant buildings, um, and extend our parking. What we were not able to do was a visitor center. And that's, that was the thing we weren't able to do because of the recession. Um, so this is what actually got built. So you can see we have our, our land is united. There is a, a safe way for our students and other visitors to get into the site. But we are clearly a goofy shape, very much a goofy shape. So when this was done, the other assumption that we had made was that the majority of our visitor traffic was going to be coming in off of Harwood Street, which is right there. I'm so glad you have a laser pointer. It's very handy. Um, the reason why we assumed Harwood Street was because if you go across the giant highway, just north of us on the other side of the highway is Farmer's Market. And there had been all of these talks about redeveloping Farmer's Market. And so we just assumed that if development was going to happen, it was going to move south on Harwood, radiating out from Farmer's Market. Um, to give you a little bit of background on, on me, which is both relevant and not relevant, um, I was hired at Dallas Heritage Village in 2004 as the educator and became the director in 2014. So though I was not intimately involved with these master plans because I was the lowly you know, curator of education, I've seen all of this happen and, and then I became very involved. So that's kind of the way our site exists. We still have all of these problems because A, there, our visitor center is like this tiny little building right here that people can't find. Um, and of course our parking, we have to get people here and here to there where our main entrance is. So it's a little confusing. I mean, there is signage, but I'm sure you all know how well visitors read signs, right? They read all of them. So this is what we're, 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 we're doing. So. Um, Right after I became executive director, things in the neighborhood started to change. Um, Farmer's Market, which is right up here, um, was privatized. It had been run by the city of Dallas and it was privatized and massive redevelopment began. Um, and so that sparked people to start looking at the cedars in a different way. And so all of these numbers are major properties that changed hands within about a year of each other. And so these buildings that had been vacant, suddenly there was talk of massive redevelopment. Now I will say that um, the biggest buildings that are our neighbors, like this number one and two and four, um, they were supposed to be done with their project at, in 2016. They have not begun construction. Never trust the developer. But other things are happening, and there is one developer that now owns all of this property that was vacant. The, the houses and apartments have been torn down decades ago. He owns one. He is currently building some stuff over here and some stuff back here, and so I know he's going to be, you know, his name is Steve, which it, it might be confusing later. But anyway, so they own all of that. And so that, all of these, I started having a lot of conversations with developers. Um, they are a strange breed. Um, the stereotypes that you have heard about developers have yet to be disproven. Um, and so they saw our land very differently than we did. 
And so they see all this property that is undeveloped and kept saying things to me like, is there any way that you can sell us that land? And the answer, luckily, is no, because all of our land is parkland. And in the state of Texas, to sell parkland, it takes an act of state legislation. So that was a really good, solid no. But then they'd start saying that, you know, well, we have these ideas. And I'm like, but, but we have ideas. But really, we didn't have ideas because we had this old master plan that in our wildest dreams did not envision over $200 million of development happening within a mile of the museum, like not even in our wildest dreams. And so we realized we needed to do a new master plan, both as a response to these developers who say, no, actually, this is our plan, but also as a way to leverage and acknowledge this change that is happening in our external neighborhood fabric. And so our, our, we, we started making, making plans to do a plan um, in about 2015, 2016. Um, and we realized we also needed new goals. So they were to embrace the neighborhood. Um, and this was new because our old plan, because there was nothing in the neighborhood, was to somehow isolate us as much as possible from the neighborhood and protect us. Because what was there was a lot of drug deal dealers and prostitutes and things that, you know, the typical museum visitor does not really want to hang out with. Um, so we wanted to embrace the neighborhood, which was a fundamental shift in our thinking as an organization just because of what was happening in the neighborhood. We also realized that we did, could not have a back door or a back side to our museum. Our assumption that development was going to come off south on Harwood first was no longer valid. There was, there was development happening on both sides as well as south of us, which again, we had never dreamed that there would be residential units being built south of Dallas Heritage Village. So we had to figure out a way. I mean, obviously, there's nothing we can do about the highway, though there is talk about a about a deck park but anyway that's not up to us um, we of course wanted to build upon our previous investment because we had spent a fair amount of money and didn't want to just completely destroy what we had done 10 years ago because that would be depressing um, enhance the visitor experience we still desperately needed a true visitor center you know the dallas market is very savvy they have we have a 200 million dollar museum not that far from us people expect certain things and bathroom facilities, for example, um, that we were not able to provide. So it was as much about the visitor experience as it was about our needs as an internal institution. We also wanted to provide a sense of arrival to know that you'd actually gotten somewhere and it was kind of special. Because again, with all these, the goofy shape of our land and the sidewalk, it, it just, it's not, people don't know where they are when they get there. That's a problem. So, we went back to our architects that had done our 2006 plan. They had also worked with us in 2002. The fabulous thing about Craig Meldy and Architects as the firm is that they, A, have an extraordinary amount of experience with historic properties. And Craig has had his office in the farmer's market neighborhood for over 30 years. So he was witnessing firsthand the dramatic amount of change and development that is happening in Dallas right now and of course knew us. And I knew we needed to move quickly on this plan because I had developers beating down my door with all kinds of ideas that were annoying. 
And so we were able to move fairly quickly. We did get a grant from a foundation to do a new master site plan, um, and we leveraged that as a capacity building um, project to embrace the changes that were coming to the neighborhood. So the first thing that, that Craig kind of did was identify what was happening all around us. And again, this is how we start thinking about embracing the neighborhood. So we knew that all of this brown stuff was going to be residential units. So we were about to be surrounded by homeowners and also rental tenants. Um, Vogel Alcove here is in a historic um, elementary school that was built in 1919. And Vogel Alcove is a nonprofit that provides childcare to homeless children up to age five. And we work very, very closely with them on a variety of ways. We have a giant IMLS grant right now. And they're also a great historic building, and they are literally directly across the street from our main entrance. So we wanted to visually incorporate them because A, fabulous historic building, and B, it's not like we can do anything about the fact that they are literally located across the street from our main entrance. Um, and of course, that realization that people are coming in from all sides, because now there are people on all sides of us living and working and, and drinking and all that good stuff. So we realized we needed to identify a new center of the museum. And so we kind of targeted this parcel of land here as a new center. And then Craig had the really crazy idea of taking down some of our fences. So our big idea with this master plan is that this parcel becomes public parkland and gives some of that land back to the city. The other thing that we were looking at as we were addressing our plan is that our neighborhood, the Cedars neighborhood, does not have any parkland. The park that they had, City Park, became a museum with admission. And so they are desperately, the Parks Department has no land acquisition budget. Um, They're desperately trying to figure out how to get a park in the Cedars before all of the land is gone. Um, but with no acquisition budget and the rapidly escalating real estate prices, it may or may not be possible. And so what one of the questions we asked ourselves was, is there something, we don't need a bigger museum, but is there something, because we have all of this land, as the largest, we have 26 acres total, is there something we can do with this land that benefits the community? And so hence is our lovely um, parkland. We've got a visitor center here. And so the park almost becomes like our front yard. And then of course, all of our museum is still ticketed and gated and all that kind of stuff because we do want to of course protect the historic structures, the students that are there, all of that good stuff. Um, we would have to move one historic building, our curatorial office, um, our collections warehouse is over here too. We would build a new collections warehouse. I really hope that we're able to incorporate some open storage type things so people can experience history without buying a ticket. That's something that I really want to make sure happens with this parkland. Um, this parcel here was never part of our fenced in area and I'm hoping we can figure out some way to make that into a revenue stream. Um, we have a lot of limitations because it is parkland on what we can do. Um, one thing that I would like to do is have that be gallery space or studio space for artists because our neighborhood has always been a big art neighborhood and they of course are getting priced out of the neighborhood with all of this massive redevelopment. Um, we would have the some sort of different paving here so when you get across some sort of gate you feel like you're somewhere that is not like the rest of Dallas. And of course that would help keep Vogel Alcove a part of that overall 
um, um, vision. And so then we'd have probably try to direct as many vehicles down this street that, of course, these new um, apartments will be facing um, down that way to get to our parking back there. So that is our plan. Um, and just to give you kind of where we are, the board, we first introduced this plan to the full board exactly a year ago today because I was looking at Facebook memories and it, it told me that. Um, the board finally voted on it and approved it in March. Um, there were some concerns because we also have a very active homeless population in our neighborhood. Um, and so there were, of course, some, some concerns about, oh my God, if you take down the fences, it's gonna be run over by, by people that we may not want to be there. And I said, look, this is at least five years away, if not seven or eight. By the time we're ready to build this and take down the fences, we will know what has happened with our neighborhood. And what I'm telling the developers is, as a nonprofit, we can't stick our neck out. We're trying to preserve a 50-year-old institution. We've been waiting for you to come here and do something for decades. We're gonna to continue to wait on you. We are the icing on the cake. You, the developer, needs to be the cake, and then we will come in at the end and really make it a, a wonderful thing. So this still has to be approved by Park Board, which is happening in uh, three weeks, theoretically, the parks department of course is thrilled with this whole concept of oh my god you're giving land to the city i mean it's their land anyway but the fact that we're taking fences down is a highly unusual concept i think and definitely in dallas and probably in most of the country so we're really excited i i will admit i am terrified about the capital campaign that's going to go with that but that's a that'll be another session presentation <laughs> in two or three years so now and Hi, everybody. Let me make sure I can operate these controls here. Okay, I got it. All right, this is a uh, rendering of what El Presidio de Santa Barbara would have looked like in about 1785. It was founded in 1782 and uh, it took a few years to build this adobe quadrangle. Uh, this at the time was the only European structure in uh, the city of Santa Barbara. You can see our Mission Santa Barbara. Has anybody ever been to Mission Santa Barbara? Or Santa Barbara, a few people. <laughs> uh, most people uh, know about the mission. It was actually built four years after the Presidio. The Presidio was one of four Spanish forts in California and their purpose was to uh, protect the system of missions. Uh, our organization was founded in 1963, and uh, this painting was actually made by a descendant of one of the original soldiers at the fort, Russell Ruiz. And this kind of represents that early founding generation's vision for uh, what the site could be, which was a full reconstruction of the entire fort in the middle of downtown Santa Barbara. And at the time my organization was founded, uh, the California State Park System was looking for more historic resources to add to the park system. They had a lot of natural resources and they were trying to add more historic resources. And so uh, we formed a, a cooperative relationship very early on where my organization would acquire a parcel of land within the footprint of the fort, transfer it or sell it to the state and at market value and then use that income to acquire more property, sell it to the state, and then we operate the state property for the state. So all the income raised in our park stays in our park. Uh, 
over time, this uh, model you know, was, um, was pretty successful, pretty popular in the 80s. The reconstruction effort was embraced by city council. Uh, the city was still very interested in um, having Santa Barbara's unique historical identity be an important marketing tool. We're uh, really dependent on the hospitality industry. Um, times have, have really changed. Uh, we have um, a really challenging relationship with our city council. Love them dearly, but sometimes we have conflicting interests. Um, they're very interested in uh, infill development and new housing, uh, and a lot of it's being proposed in our historic core. And uh, their interests have changed to, uh, for a variety of reasons, to essential needs uh, for the population uh, rather than, um, you know, cultural interest in preservation. Uh, the planning that we've done over time has been uh, piecemeal and by force. <laughs> I don't know, does anyone else have this culture in your organization where you kind of do the plan because you have to do it or because, you know, a state agency is making you do it, which is in our case. Um, and if they're not making you do it, you don't do it because then you can be flexible and nimble and uh, don't have that um, strict accountability. These are words that I had heard from our board and our executive leadership over time. Um, but, you know, the recession hit us all very hard. I think like a lot of nonprofits, we ended up reacting to it for several years. I think we're still reacting to it when we could not get ahead of it and we couldn't create a new model in time to do anything constructive about it. And uh, now we're still suffering with this um, expectation that we're going to get state money for to do big capital projects and that all of our local community foundations are just going to buoy us along with our own, um, our own dated plans. Um, and the board and staff priorities, uh, as our organization grew over time, we professionalized, we hired a lot more staff. Um, the board did not have term limits until very recently, and so the board kind of stayed the same as the staff evolved. Um, and priorities started to grow very diverse. So we had a lot of board member pet projects, and we had a lot of staff member um, kind of visioning planning from below. Um, and that was the, the role that I was in. I've been with the organization for 20 years, and I really enjoyed planning, but I was trying to plan from below. Has anybody been in that situation where you're not part of the leadership, but you're trying to plan? Okay, I see you out there. Yes, <laughs> thank you for being brave, raising your hand. It's a tough place to be. Uh, and so uh, yeah, planning, planning was needed. Um, this is uh, what our site looked like uh, about 15 years ago. It's only gotten more dense. Um, it's a little faded, but this is that quadrangle overlaid on downtown Santa Barbara. Uh, so the entire urban fabric of our city grew out from this site. Um, and if you can imagine, that original vision was to uh, tear down all of the buildings from other time periods and turn this into an enclosed living history park uh, surrounded by the defense wall um, of the fort and have street closures. Um, they went through a, a general planning process that the state required in 1988, and the general public did not approve that, that vision, so they approved a modified reconstruction. And this is kind of the, the cornerstone of the reconstruction. It's the Presidio Chapel. Uh, so we've, we're pretty much built out now uh, with the approved general plan for the state, and that was you know approved 30 years ago. Um, and this is uh, kind of the core museum part of the park, but the park does cover all of these four blocks and a lot of historic buildings from other time periods that uh, are really relevant um, and are, are within the boundaries of the park but had never really been recognized on their own merits. 
Along the way, we also picked up a couple of other historic properties. Um, Casa de la Guerra is a historic uh, home. It's an adobe home right on City Hall Plaza in downtown Santa Barbara. And uh, we were gifted this building along with a big attached 1920 shopping center. We um, sold the shopping center, kept a conservation easement on it, kept the uh, adobe, restored it to its original configuration, and now operate it as a classic house museum with furnished period rooms because that is what our board wanted to do and they didn't ask anybody in the community what they wanted to do that was their vision and and here it is and it looks like this pretty much every day uh, they also acquired through a gift these are two stone uh, mill buildings with an attached uh, reservoir up in the north part of our county and these were uh, mill buildings a fulling mill and a grist mill that supported San Inez mission so another mission within the Presidio's district and it's on uh, five acres of really rural property and uh, it's now the property is owned by the state and we operate it uh, we've spent 10 years doing uh, interim use guidelines um, not permanent use guidelines but interim use guidelines that we'll be presenting to the state uh, actually the week that I, I get back uh, from this conference. And uh, again, this was uh, fearfulness on the board. What if nobody else does this or protects this property? We have to do it. Uh, but there was no plan for how we were going to do it. So right now, it's a uh, $50,000 drain on our annual operating budget. Uh, and we, we are not at the point yet where we can even have the public safely access the property. Uh, so this is just to show you some examples of the types of plans we have done. We've done a lot of plans. Uh, we've done the big general plan. Uh, I did a visitor experience plan and then state parks didn't like that I did it as a nonprofit, so they made me redo it according to their guidelines. So we have an interpretive master plan that the state has now acknowledged. Um, we have landscape plans, we have reconstruction plans, restoration plans, furnishing plans, we have a signage plan, building maintenance plans, we have a scope of collections, document retention plan, and a disaster plan. And yet I can't tell you until um, very recently that uh, anybody on our board or staff could agree about uh, what we were doing and why we were doing it, even though we have all of these plans. Uh, does anybody else feel like you've just been mired in plans but you can't get anywhere with them because you don't have this? Okay, I see some nodding. It's always good to like know you're not alone um, when this happens. And they're beautiful plans, as you can see. I've got all the covers <laughs> of them on here. And I love them and I use them. Um, but, you know, that's because I'm an innately a planner and not everybody does. Uh, so a year ago, uh, we started a strategic planning process, and I was so like pleased to see all the hands in the room. So many of you already have strategic plans, so you're way ahead of me here. This is our first one ever. And the way that we got this was uh, when our previous executive director retired, uh, the board did a search, and uh, I was the internal candidate, so I went back to my house and Skyped the board doing interviews uh, with them on the property, and, and we, you know, we did it all very above board. And I, in my interviews, said, listen if you guys hire me I'm not gonna like it's not a bait-and-switch here if you hire me we're gonna do a strategic plan because I you know I don't think anybody here it can deal with this piecemealing um, operation that we've been doing for 50 years we're gonna do a strategic plan and I sold them on it this is why we're gonna do it so I ended up getting the job and the first thing I did was write a grant to a local foundation, a uh, $50,000 grant, and I got it, and this was for general operating support, and we earmarked it to, to do a strategic plan. 
So we hired Bob Beatty, who I'm replacing on the panel today. I'm really sorry that he couldn't be here because I've learned so much from him over the past year. Um, and this strategic planning process did take a year. We focused on getting stakeholder input, so we did stakeholder workshops. That took about six months, and in our community in Santa Barbara, these six months overlapped with the floods and fires of last winter, and it was really challenging. And you know, I had um, community members coming in saying, uh, with you know, ash swirling in behind them uh, as they came into a meeting, saying, "I really hope I can get home tonight. They might close the freeway, but I wanted to be here for you guys to do this." And it was a real lesson in um, why it was so important to ask the community what they thought we should do. We'd never done that, and it was transformative. Um, so for us, uh, we ended up with a lot of new things uh, that are great tools for me as the executive director. Uh, we had this old mission state statement that described uh, you know, all of the little things that we do. We restore, we reconstruct, we interpret, and you know, the board in 2007 uh, poured their blood, sweat, and tears into coming up with this, and they kept adding words and taking them out, and do we do education, do we interpret, do we not, and, and, uh, and today this um, you know, was, was not very helpful for me as a tool. We ended up with this new mission statement, and again, it's a compromise, and this is something we can talk more about, the compromise of the strategic plan, you know, politically, how do you get something approved versus get your dream and what you want. Uh, the Trust for Historic Preservation stewards the past and present of the Presidio neighborhood. I, we were ready to leave it there, but uh, the board, uh, contingent on the board, asked for this addition, inspire preservation advocacy through the county in order to create a more vibrant community. So it's nice and long, and Bob Beatty uh, sees this. He cannot let this go, and you know, he's already thinking about three years from now when we do the revision, we're gonna try to tighten this up a little bit. But you know, the core of it is more dynamic. It does focus us back in on the Presidio neighborhood. That's what our stakeholders told us they think that we do and that they want us to do and what they need us to do. It also uh, helps us align with what's already going on in our neighborhood. This um, webpage, the Presidio Neighborhood, is a business a group of businesses who've ganged together to create an app and a website and a map to get businesses or to get visitors to come to their businesses. And uh, we can be a part of this conversation now because we've identified that the Presidio Neighborhood concept, which is bigger than the Spanish colonial period at this historic site, is part of our purview. We also uh, came up with organizational values, and this was something that was so important to me. How many of you out there have organizational values or value statements? They are the greatest thing. I've, we've had this plan, it's hot off the press, we, did it, we closed it a, and approved it a month ago, so it's not even on our website yet, and I've already used these values several times in conversation. Uh, a couple of my favorite ones, I won't read all of them, but uh, number two is promote the diversity of cultures that comprise the Presidio neighborhood. This is transformative for us. We used to uh, interpret the Spanish colonial period only. Our site was also the site of Chinatown and Japantown and the Mexican barrio, and now is a thriving local business district. And now we can talk about all of those elements of the history without it being Anne has this thing that she does called the Presidio Neighborhood. Now the board voted on these. These are what we all do. I lost my place here. And um, number six, another favorite of mine, that we value and celebrate cooperation, partnership, equity, inclusivity, and diversity. 
And that, again, it's very important for me when I'm hiring people to let them know what kind of culture they're walking into and um, to remind the board. Uh, we've been getting, um, you know, some, some hate mail. Some of it is CC'd to the governor because the governor cares what I'm doing in Santa Barbara uh, for doing like an Asian American film series because people think that this is supposed to be a Spanish colonial site. And, uh, you know, now I, it's not targeted just at me because I like this film series, right? It's it's that we, as an organization, value inclusivity and diversity. And we came up with four goals. Of course, there's objectives and tactics that tease all of these out into small um, pieces, but uh, the goals are, are galvanizing the staff. Like, now we know, okay, this is our three-year plan. We're going to do these things. Um, we're going to focus on an improved visitor experience. We're working on uh, national standards in our field, reaching those standards. We're going to support the Presidio neighborhood in, in all of its uh, diverse functions uh, with cultural organizations and local businesses. And we're going to align our resources to achieve our mission. So that means nobody's wild hair pet project uh, gets a, a ton of attention if it's not supporting the mission. Um, another th uh, big thing this allows me to do, this is our next capital project, which is the restoration of the Coda Knox House. It's one of the earliest uh, red brick, fire brick buildings as opposed to adobe in Santa Barbara. It's from 1871, and this is what it looked like. This is what it looks like today, a little less character, and uh, we have plans to uh, restore that facade along with doing a seismic retrofit and uh, roof replacement. And so what this does then is acknowledge that reconstruction is no longer uh, the pathway to uh, achieve our interpretive goals, that taking care of the historic resources that we have and all of the time periods that they represent is something that we value and can um, pursue. And so uh, by improving this facade, we're improving the neighborhood and we're helping Santa Barbara um, as a destination. And that's it for me. So um, Gunson Hall, for those of you who don't know, is the home of George Mason. George Mason was the author of the Virginia Declaration of Rights, which is the um, basically with a few changes by James Madison is the Bill of Rights, the first 14 amendments to the Constitution. Uh, he wrote most of that right here in this house um, and on these grounds and uh, a significant, uh, significant site from that period. Uh, over time, uh, George Mason has lost his prominence to some extent, you know, within the within the culture, you know, and he, they commonly say at uh, at Gunston Hall that uh, you know he's the second George, you know, the other George being George Washington, whose house is ten miles up the road and gets a million visitors a year, you know, uh, Gunston Hall, you know, is twenty five thousand visitors a year, so a very different uh, site and a very different. Uh, uh, location. So it's it's located on the Potomac, uh, just like uh, Mount Vernon, uh, a little bit further south, but uh, right outside the Beltway. You know, so huge population center uh, surrounding this property. Uh, it's a very interesting uh, development, though. It uh, it's actually operated. So when in in 1950 it became a museum, uh, was donated by the Hurdle family. Uh, Mrs. Hurdle was a colonial dame. Uh, so the, uh, as a colonial dame, she donated the property to the state. The Commonwealth of Virginia owns the property, but she bequeathed that it would be operated by the National Society for the Colonial Dames of America. So Scott has two masters. 
he has a board of the Colonial Dames and he has a board of the Commonwealth of, Ma of Virginia, you know, in this process. Uh, it was a point of tension for a very, very long time um, over the course of, of their history. Uh, they built a visitor center, which pretty much mostly now dates from 1970. Um, you know, it, uh, they developed the site, but then, you know, pretty much after 1970, with a few exceptions, uh, kind of turned their back on the state and said, you know, we're going to take your operations money, but we don't really want you too involved because we kind of want to do our own thing. You know, we're a traditional house museum. We're going to operate that way. We have a kind of ordinary functions that we want to do. And so, you know, there was a lot of deferred maintenance, a lot of issues over time. Uh, Scott actually became the executive director in 2012. Uh, he brought us on in 2014. Uh, one of the things I really applaud Scott for is when he started the process of going through a master plan, he had already, between 2012 and 2014, gone through the process that Ann went through, you know, in developing a strategic plan. So right out of the gate, I'm going to do a strategic plan. He did rebranding. He did um, you know, the visitor count process to identify these efforts. You know, he brought in a capital <coughs> campaign consultant to at least talk about the fact of what does this mean down the road, you know, for us to start to do fundraising. We never did fundraising before. We just took the money from the state and we were happy, you know. And so it's, uh, it, it, it's a process, but it, was, it really impressed me, you know, to come into that process with somebody who had done so much work up front, you know, in order to prepare for that process and be ready to really do something effective uh, in that effort. Uh, and so, you know, it's why we did a master plan, you know, it's 550 acre historic site, pretty much, you know, the only part of the site that they actually used is this little green area, but all that light area is, is the property that's Gunson Hall. In fact, Mason owned the entire uh, Mason Neck, which is much bigger property than that. It's really unique historic landscape. I mean, this place just blew me away the first time I went there because you're, you're come off I-95, you're on the Beltway, it's urban craziness, you know, actually in Lorton right there, there's a big dump, you know, a, a big landfill, you know, right at that point in Lorton, and you drive off I-95 one mile to the east and you come into this pastoral landscape that is Mason Neck, you know, and it, it doesn't exist uh, in the D.C. region. It's 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 really remarkable place, you know, that you can just kind of, you know, you can be 10 miles outside of D.C. and in this pastoral landscape that exists out here that's a series of different, you know, it's not all Gunston Hall. It's a, There's a state park. There's a, a BLM property, you know, but it's all public land and it's, you know, there's other than some few houses down there, down at the end on the water, uh, very remarkable place, but they had this deferred maintenance, and they had so they had these, these you know goals, um, you know, for the strategic plan to increase the programming and you know better improve their visitor experience, and so you know the the process that we went through, um, very similar to what Ann talked about, you know, was um, going through public meetings. You know, we brought the public in, we brought stakeholders into this process, um, and and started this process by asking them. What do you want? What what is this important? You know, so we had the we had the ASLH visitor count survey to to talk about that, but then we brought in all these neighboring organizations and and the uh, the neighboring public. We brought people in from the county and talked about uh, what all those opportunities were. We brought in the Colonial Dames, so the board, and 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 talked about what their interests were, and we talked to. Uh, people within the Commonwealth um, about what their interests were. So we brought in all those people uh, in order to have input into this process. And so we developed some goals, you know, that we really wanted to uh, 
adapt this to the strategic plan that you know fundamentally this place needs to be about education um, and and we need to adapt it to that uh, to that vision um, and then of course improving the visitor experience and all the staff support spaces is part of that process the other thing we did was a lot of historic research so you know it's uh, we mapped the entire site, looked at aerial maps over time, really tried to understand the evolution of Gunston Hall. One of the really interesting historical things that have come out of this, and it's not something I would take credit for because there's a lot of people who've worked on it um, in this effort, but Gunston, unlike Mount Vernon or some of the other plantations on the Potomac, you know, which faced out to the river, faced out towards England, if you will, you know, the idea of facing out towards commerce and, and that front, uh, what we've determined is, is Mason actually faced his house towards his birthplace. He was born on the property right here. This is Gunston Hall, and there's an axis on the property where the axis of his property doesn't face directly to the Potomac. It faces towards his birthplace. You know, so the theories of the historians now are that, that Mason was actually saying, I'm an American. You know, this is what's important. is not my connection to the outside world and to Europe and all that sort of stuff, but my connection is important because I'm an American and this is my identity. Um, really interesting development, you know, that uh, uh, when you think about Gunston Hall. Has a really unique uh, historic landscape feature that's unlike anything that's found in any plantation home, you know, in, in Virginia. Uh, it actually had and it doesn't exist at this point, but it had a, what, a splayed alley of trees that came down the entrance drive. And uh, George Mason's son actually wrote in a narrative uh, memoir of that experience that when Mason brought the visitors up from the river, which is the way most people arrived at the house, he would take them out the front door and he would say, what do you see? And they said, four trees, see four trees. He could see those first four trees and then he would take them down off the porch and say, step to the side, and you would see this huge alley of trees going out in the distance. So a visual trick that you know he had thought about in this in this property, but also had the effect if you arrive from the land side that it created this uh, forced perspective that made the property seem much more grand, you know, a lot longer in the distance. Um, and so they've identified this through archaeology. They've identified where all the trees were proved that this actually existed, you know, and uh, something that they hope to actually restore to some extent in this process. So we came up with a master plan that, you know, was really about uh, several key things. You know, one was preserving that core. So, you know, what is Mason about? What is that core history? And so the master plan really identified, you know, along that central axis that we really wanted this to be about Mason and ac actually restore it. So part of that was taking the visitor center out of the uh, historic area so that because it, inter it, it impeded with that splayed LA of trees um, and then you know restoring the sort of fundamental components of the of the uh, Mason period so that when you actually look out uh, from Mason's front door you come out and you have that same experience you see what Mason saw uh, in that project in that in that property and so then that meant that we wanted to bring everything that was sort of historically related, you know, sort of the visitor experience things that were related to that experience, bring them around the perimeter of that. And so, you know, the new visitor center being located over here, kind of inside the tree edge. So it's no longer a prominent thing, um, but it's something that people can see, you know, they can see the house from the visitor center and have that experience. Um, and I'm not going to go through all the details of the master plan specifically, but there are two really interesting things that I think developed out of this master planning process. 
uh, that, that were in that effort. Um, so we zoned all this into different sort of functional areas uh, within the property. But one of the key things of making that visitor center is this, this, this is a back road right now. So they don't use the back road. They have two entrances, but pretty much everybody comes in and out the same road that is where the alley, you know, kind of down the formal, ent formal entry to the property. Uh, they come to the visitor center. It's the way it exists now if you go there. Um, in this new vision, the idea is to bring people down that LA and bring them around and then have a, a, an exit. So you now have an entry and an exit to the property instead of just everybody coming in and out the same direction. But part of the, part of the interest in doing that was that we wanted to change the visitor experience. So people no longer, they, they arrived, they came down, they could see the end of LA, they could have that visual understanding of what that was like uh, at, at that point, but that they would actually come to the visitor center but when they actually came to the mansion, they would experience it like the workers in the fields. So that they would come through this area called Logtown, which is where all the slaves worked and had their workshops and that sort of stuff. And they would come up the road and you know, as, as they came down the road, they would go down to the fields. And so this is the, would be the new experience for visitors to Gunston Hall to come through like like somebody who worked the property as opposed to like you know the gentry who came down you know were the only people who came down the formal drive uh in the front so changing the narrative um you know and the complexity of of who mason is and who Gunston, what gunston hall is about uh in this process the second thing that developed out of this you know which is fundamentally scott's idea um is that he wants to develop a preschool on the property so, you know, what he always says is, you know, we want to educate our youngest citizens into the, the issues of citizenship here on our property. And so part of his vision in this new sort of educational center uh, is to, to bring a preschool to the property. He got this idea partly from uh, collaboration with a number of children's museums who, you know, colleagues that he knows that have, have developed uh, preschools within children's museums, which seems a little bit more natural fit. But the idea of doing this in a historic site and changing, again, the context of a historic site, which, you know, getting away from the historic house model where it's all about baby boomers who are your primary visitor and saying, I want to have children and families. I want this place to be about children and families and about, you know, those educational opportunities. That was the fundamental thing that he's, you know, hopes to achieve. Uh, with this master plan and with with the goals and vision. So fortunately, you know, the master plan was completed in 2015. Uh, Scott's already raised $2 million, um, partly to restore the Mason Garden. And so one of the projects, we developed a phasing plan, but one of the projects that we have that actually uh, just uh, delivered the construction documents for this morning uh, <laughs> is, uh, restoration of the Mason Garden, part of our initial phase to reestablish this sort of core identity and the things around it. Uh, and there are a number of other things that are starting to happen as part of that master plan. So it's a long process. You know, we, we always say this is a, you know, this idea, this book, this book we created, you know, is a 25-year vision for Gunston Hall. It's not something that's going to happen tomorrow. It's not something that's going to happen in three years. But, you know, it's, it's really important to have this because it tells people that you're serious. You know, he has, you know, both, both of his um, groups that he has to uh, be beholden to, the Dames and the Commonwealth. Um, 
you know, can take this and understand what is this, what is this vision about? What is, you know, what are you trying to achieve? And now it becomes the basis for him to start to do things. I mean, the dames have been super excited about this process and they, they were often the ones who were very slow moving in this effort. Um, and so it's, it's been a real catalyst for things coming uh, with Gunston Hall. Excited to see how that continues to develop. So now I'm going to turn it over. Um, what I'd like to do first is just open it up for some questions from you all. Um, we do have a set of questions that uh, we were going to talk about in this process, but um, anybody um, have a question they would like to ask? So we actually call ours a master site plan because it's actually more about the physical assets that we have. Um, we do plan, before we launch a capital campaign, um, we are planning to do an interpretive plan because that is also sadly, tragically out of date. Um, we have a strategic plan right now, but it is very short, um, as in two pages short. And the reason why it is two pages is because there was a lot of stuff happening in our neighborhood and we knew that with that amount of redevelopment that our business was going to change. But we could not fully anticipate those changes nor could we control the timeline. So I didn't want to set up something to where it'd be like, well, and especially with our big, big friend, massive buildings that were supposed to be done two years ago, I'm really glad we didn't put dates in there because I didn't want to set my staff up to feel like they had failed because, oh, we were going to have X, Y, and Z partnership program going by 2017 and no, because those partners haven't completed their building yet. So I think you, you can have, as, as Anne demonstrated, you can have many, many plans. And I wouldn't get caught up on what to call them, but just the, the process of doing them and making sure they meet what you need. So before we do a capital campaign, the plan, our, our plan for the plan is we have our master site plan, so we have the big overall vision. Obviously, we have not done specific building drawings or anything like that because all that's going to cost more money. But we will be doing an interpretive plan, hopefully starting in January. The other thing I want to get is um, I've met a consultant that does some economic forecasting um, that helps you both the build up and then after you open this thing because we've all seen museums that have done a massive capital expansion and then almost gone bankrupt 
because they did not adequately plan for the transition. And then the, you know, if you build it, they will come is not really true. So I think that part of it is all of those steps. And I actually laid out for, for my board kind of like, here's our roadmap to making this a reality. And we're not even going to be looking at a feasibility study for a capital campaign until X, Y, and Z are done. And that did help some board members that were like, oh my God, we can't take on something this large because we have all these other issues too. Um, so yeah, I think the don't get hung up on what to call your plan. Just just make a plan. <laughs> Is that was that a, okay? Yeah. Okay. In the back. <laughs> That's a great question. So um, our consultant, Bob Beatty, had a uh, process for doing um, these facilitated workshops. And it, they were very structured. So we didn't have big free-for-all meetings where everybody's sort of yelling out or some people are really quiet and two people yell out. Um, this structure, for, first of all, I wrote the guest list. <laughs> so um, we had uh, about 75 people participate and, and I put it together based on internal stakeholders and external stakeholders and tried to get a range from all of our big um, constituencies. So we had uh, representatives from the local newspapers, from um, you know, city commissions, city staff, um, you know, users of our site, like um, musicians that play in our venues, um, local businesses and tenants, and um, our board and our staff all participated. And that was a choice that we, we made, was that the entire board was not going to be uh, wordsmithing this plan. They had an opportunity to participate as a stakeholder like everybody else, and then we we um, designated the executive committee to uh, be the guiding force over the creation of the plan and, and work with me on, on the wordsmithing. Uh, so with this structure, you get uh, teams of, of 12 people. And so again, I tried to do the invitation so that we had really diverse groups of people coming together. Um, and then uh, you sit with six people on either side of a table, and uh, each person has a question. Uh, so there's six questions and uh, you talk across the table to your partner and so you're asking somebody across the table a question and you're writing down their answer and then they you stop after three minutes and then they ask you the question and write down the answer um, so wonderful benefits of this are that you have um, instant scribes so that your staff are not taking all of the notes themselves <laughs> and this like one-on-one -on -one dialogue is um, it's incredible for like fostering empathy across the table. Uh, people will tell uh, an individual uh, way more than they will tell a room of 50 people. And uh, we compiled all that data and then we did an analysis where uh, for each question we uh, wrote down all the answers summarized and then as answers repeated we started taking tallies and so we found that um, you know uh, we had some uh, comments from these questions that had 30 people saying the same thing um, we think you guys do the presidio right that's what you do and then you know we have uh, one answer that says um, you know you have this great facade easement over this shopping center good job and so what do people think we do they they think we we operate this presidio and so uh, and it was amazing how the answers fell out that way um, and so you know I had people on the board who said hey I said that the San Inez Mission Mills are the most important thing we we do and that's not in the plan well 
maybe that's because you were the only one who said it out of 75 people. And um, so, and that's hard, that's hard for the board to realize that they're, uh, they're a voice in the community too. And you know, they have a certain obligations uh, on our board, but they, uh, they are one of, of many stakeholders that have opinions about us. And we're trying to meet the needs. I mean, you know, we're considered a public charity by the IRS. We have to be serving somebody. Who are we serving? We're not serving the board anymore. <laughs> we're serving the community. And, and that was a big learning process. I think for us, that was a, a big um, step uh, for me to acknowledge was that we're not just creating a plan, but we're educating the board about how to do planning at the same time. And so it was kind of like double the workload. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, they they now understand um, what they've approved and, and you know, I, I hope that I have all of their buy-in and they're a little bit of sour grapes because their pet project's not on the list, uh, but they know why and they can move on. At Gunson Hall, we did a similar public process. Bob has a great process, I have to say. You know, if, uh, I know Bob, and uh, that effort that uh, Ann is describing is very effective. Uh, when we did our public meetings, we actually separated, um, instead of bringing, you know, the all the different groups together and kind of, you know, making them intermixed, we actually separated out uh, some of the constituent groups. So we had a specific meeting for staff, we had a specific meeting for volunteers, we had a specific meeting for members of the public. But we invited everybody. So we said, you know, you are welcome to come um, with the understanding, you know, that we, we actually told them up front that we want to record all of your ideas, but not all of your ideas are going to make it into the plan. So we were very obvious, you know, and upfront about that process that, um, much like Ann said, you know, we're, this is a consensus-driven process. So, you know, it's, it's important to gain consensus, and consensus really does come out of those kind of efforts. Um, but um, it's, it, and it's documented. So, you know, it actually generates more buy-in, even for the people who don't um, get their specific core, you know, idea into the plan. The fact that they know they've been heard and that they know it's documented in that process and that, you know, they've participated in that effort, they've had their chance to put that forward in that effort, and that, that really generates their support even if, if everything they said isn't incorporated into the, the end result. So I, I, I'm sure like everybody in this room has their strategy for getting a planning process started and it can look different based on your organization's dynamics. And for, for mine, it was uh, getting the executive committee on board. And luckily we have a board president who um, embraces planning because she's done it on many nonprofit boards and she sees this as her contribution as president. When she looks back on her legacy as president, it's gonna be that she got us the strategic plan. And I give her total ownership over that. I applaud that. It, this can belong to her. It's great because I have a plan and I can use it <laughs> and whatever works. And so she, she helped to kind of indoctrinate and educate our executive committee and that's why they um, were then, she deputized 
prioritize them to be the planning committee. Um, and uh, we had lots of meetings at, with the executive committee that were ex extended meetings before the board meeting where everyone in that room had an assignment about what they were going to say in the board meeting, uh, anticipating any feedback that we were going to get throughout the planning process. And you know, that, that was a big lesson for me, too, is, is the idea of having this vanguard group that is going to carry the movement forward, that it couldn't just, it couldn't be me. I had to get um, powerful board members on board to do this. And, you know, the staff, that was easy. They, they embraced it. They get it. They want to have a plan, too. They want to know what we're doing. Um, and, uh, you know, we did have a coup two-thirds of the way through. It's, you know, happens um, sometimes. And the coup was about the mission statement. And, you know, the executive committee didn't, um, we tried to anticipate what was going to happen and we didn't, uh, didn't see it uh, play out the way that it did. And one, one powerful board member who's not in the executive committee uh, uh, did some, you know, uh, fear rallying with the rest of the board and said, if you approve this mission statement, basically everything you value is, is going to be, is disintegrate. And you can't, and, and then uh, he, he chose, which is not uh, accepted by our bylaws, he chose his own committee to rewrite the mission statement. And then I thought, oh, this whole thing's over and we're just going backwards now and I, it, all hope is gone. And I had a, fret, a fretful night after that. Like there's now a new subcommittee to rewrite the mission statement that we slaved over and wrote. And so uh, we took another month and our board president infiltrated this new subcommittee <laughs> and took it over and, um, and met with them and had me at the meeting and we agreed on a compromise mission statement. And then she, this was her brilliance, was at the next board meeting, she named that subcommittee as the committee that was going to um, pre-approve the whole strategic plan before the board saw it. Uh, so she was able to turn that around and, and take ownership over it. Um, and so that, you know, the lesson for me there was that, it, you know, it couldn't just be me, it couldn't just be the board president, that all that work and strategizing behind the scenes, like you had to know that this thing was going to get approved before anyone even saw it. <laughs> that was the most work. Any other questions? So, so one of our challenges is that, like, like many of you, your cities are somewhat divided economically. And so a lot of our board members live in what we call in Dallas affectionately the Highland Park bubble. So the only time that they saw anything of what was happening in our neighborhood was when they came to Dallas Heritage Village for a meeting. And at this point, there's not a lot going on. When we were in the middle of this planning process, there was not a lot going on immediately around us. Now, if you drove two or three blocks further into the neighborhood, you were seeing new construction. And of course, if you were reading the newspapers, you were hearing about the fact that a high-speed rail station, the first high-speed rail line in the United States, the station will most, if that thing happens, the station will be less than a mile from Dallas Heritage Village. Like, it's hard to ignore, but when we were in the middle of the planning stuff, this was not fully visible yet to the board. 
And so one of our challenges when we do this radical thing of we're going to take down some fences and all they see when they come in to a meeting is the homeless dude hanging out on our corner as he has been doing for the past 30 years. Um, it was hard for them to see the future. And I think that's one of the things that is an ongoing challenge with any board is, or or your staff, we had some staff that the thing they freaked out was about was like, oh my God, we're not going to have enough parking for candlelight. Candlelight's two nights a year. And I said, if we have enough parking for 90% of our activities, we're fine. We will figure out the other 10%. That is not a reason to not do this plan. So part of the challenge is helping others to see the future. And, you know, the ways that we did that was to bring in every single board meeting, I would have an update on neighborhood development. I would bring in um, some of those developers to talk about what they're doing. I, we added a um, non-voting position on the board that was for the Cedars Neighborhood Association. Um, that person is now on our executive board because there's some other issues on our board that I feel like perhaps it can help with. Um, so part of that is just saying it over and over and over again. So that's how we counter. And of course, we still had board members, even though we've had all these conversations that are like, this neighborhood is never going to change because some of these people have been involved with the organization for decades or their family have been involved for a long time. And we have been promised many things over the years that have not come to fruition. Um, but it's different this time, unless there's like a massive economic collapse and then who knows, you know, none of us will be here. Um, so anyway, so that's kind of, I don't know if how well that answers your question, but, but some of it is, again, it's the strategy that's involved. You, you've got to have a plan for your plan too. You got to get everybody on board, but you've got to kind of analyze, okay, this is where the objections and the challenges are going to come. And how are we going to address those in a way that does not make it feel like anybody is being pushed out? and not a part of the process. So our master plan committee was not just made up of board meeting board members. And then of course the other key was once it was approved, we took it to neighborhood Cedar neighborhood association meetings and other places around to make sure we had that broad buy-in. And of course at that point, and when we do the master interpretive plan, not to be a paid advertisement by Bob Be for Bob Beatty, but we do plan to work with Bob, on that interpretive plan. So he's, Bob is the reason why we're all sitting here at this session and he's not at ASLH. And I'm trying not to be upset with him because I swore that I would never do two sessions in a conference again. And yet this is my second session. So, you know, if you, if you enjoy harassing Bob Beattie as well, then you can join us and perhaps that's a good closer. Yeah, I know, I know uh, I asked, Scott Stroh, a similar question, you know, when we were preparing for this session, and one of the things he told me, he said he, he was really surprised how quickly the the dames got around the plan and really became the champions of the plan, but it was, you know, one particular, you know, individual within that who really became the catalyst, you know, kind of pushing for this, like, this is going to happen, you know, in this in this process, and he had more challenges with the staff, and so, you know, he had a good bit of, he's had a good bit of staff turnover as a result of, you know, trying to change things more so than, you know, having trouble with the dames and part of that effort. But, you know, he used a great phrase, I thought, you know, and, uh, 
talking about how he keeps this process going is he he calls his approach strategic impatience you know (laughs) (laughs) he says i'm gonna you know we're gonna keep this effort moving forward um and uh so so uh with that uh, i think we're out of time so uh there are uh evaluations on the tables please uh, fill one out before you go but thank you all for coming